My guest today is Mark Eglinton. Mark is the author and co-author of several books on celebrities. His latest book is No Domain, The John McAfee Tapes. Mark, thanks for, thanks for being on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Uh, and here I am. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. You know, I, I followed John McAfee quite a bit the past couple of years just because he's had so much... Uh, he's done a lot of interviews on YouTube and somehow I got sucked into them, but he's kind of a fascinating guy. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that, uh, your book, I'm curious about yourself. Uh, you are a co-author on a lot of books on celebrities. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. What does that mean? How do you become a, a writer and a co-writer? And how did you get started in that industry? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> for me, just to give people a bit of background, I started off in all kinds of other uh, worlds that are nothing to do with publishing. I was in business. Uh, I had a kind of life change in 2004 when I was kind of at a junction in my life when personal and business kind of melted down a little bit. And I live in a town called St. Andrews, which is the home of golf in Scotland. And I've always been a keen golfer and a caddy and these kind of things have always been my world. And I had an opportunity at this point when business had failed, marriage had failed, father had died, all these kind of things where I wanted to fundamentally change what, what I did in my life. So I took a couple of years out and caddied on the old course. Uh, basically loved being out there, loved the job. But the, the, the key to this is that the, the act of taking golfers out for four and a half hour rounds, and bear in mind, most of these people are here on sort of bucket, li bucket list trips. First time in the old course, this is their dream. You know, you meet them on the first tee, you, you don't know these people at all, and you have to find some common ground with them. And I found that this to be so fascinating. I had to learn about people, I had to find a way that we could communicate for these four and a half hours. So anyway, cut a long story short, that was the beginning of it. I did all this, and... Uh, I'd always wanted to write. My English teacher at school <laughs> said to me, you would be a really good writer if you ever showed up because I didn't really show up very often. But he said, you know, you could have a future in this. But when you're, when, you're, when you're 17, you don't think that writing is either viable, sexy. It's none of those things. So I just dismissed that. But I always did a bit of writing in later life. But it was only when I got to this point in my life where I had to decide really what I wanted to do with myself where I thought, hmm, maybe there's a writing career here. And that's what started. I kind of kind of found what I uh what interested me and th that was music uh I was always a heavy metal fan I still am I, I, I live that world so I thought well I can write about heavy metal surely I can do that so I, I literally begged websites some really really low-grade websites to let me submit reviews and uh I did and they were very naive and I wasn't very good at it but I got better at it and I developed a little bit of craft. And then out of the blue in 2009, I got a, a sort of referral uh, from a publisher who wanted a biography of Metallica's James Hetfield written. And I thought, okay, this is a big break if I take this. I had no idea how to write a book. I had no idea how to research a book. I didn't know anything about it, but I agreed, uh, got paid a small advance, and I figured it out. And that was it. That was the beginning. And from there, opportunities came about because people thought, this guy did okay. This is a good guy. I found a lot of people. I contacted a lot of people. And from there, I just built up this career. And that's how it all started. But it all came from caddying. That was the, 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 the genesis of it all. Wow. That, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I, I was a caddy in, in high school. I, I didn't know that People did it, you know, when they were, uh, you know, as, as adults. Mm. Um, but yeah, sometimes when I would caddy, people just wouldn't want to talk much at all. Other times they would talk a lot. So you kind of had to read people and figure out well, if it was okay to talk at this yep. point or not, things like that. So I, I can see how you're saying that that kind of led into what you're doing now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to follow, I mean, to follow up on, on some of the things you said, I mean, you 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 based did you have any experience other than writing for these websites and writing uh during school that that you could bring with you to your writing career Honestly, not really i mean <clears throat> in business before that i'd written the odd sort of newspaper article or you know i'd written business things i always knew i had a pretty decent ability to write and some people just don't have that and i think i, I owe it to my mother she was an english teacher and I remember when I was at school at the age of sort of nine or 10, I used to bring back work uh, that I thought was pretty good. And my mother would sit with me after dinner at night and say, 
yeah, this is okay, but you could make it better by doing this. And she, I, I got so frustrated with her at the time because she'd never let me go and do what I wanted to do. She'd say, you've got to, you've got to see this through until it's really excellent. And I realized that it's not just a case of writing. You've got to refine it and improve it and all of that. My mother taught me that. So I guess by the age of 13, I was always pretty reasonably solid as a writer. But in terms of doing anything commercial, I didn't think I had any ability whatsoever. In fact, as I said, some of the early stuff was pretty naive, but you figure it out. And I think that's the, the key. You know, it's do the work. And I was willing to. Uh, and that first book I wrote uh, was really hard work because I had to interview people. I had to collate these interviews. I had to transcribe them. Then I had to build a book from scratch. And if you've never built a book from scratch, how do you even start? And that's what people still say to me now, because I'm writing three books at the moment. I've always got two or three going on. People say, how do you even write one? I said, I can't describe it, but you just have to do it. You have to figure it out. And I did. And once you've done one, you can write any amount of books. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, take me through a little bit more. So you, you get a blank screen up, you get Microsoft Word or a text editor. And <laughs> are, are you outlining or you just start writing? Well, okay. Let, let's say, let me skip a step and tell you that I went immediately from writing my own book, a biography about somebody else to writing other people's books. And it's a very important distinction that a lot of people don't discuss, don't really understand. Uh, so let's say somebody, a celebrity, a musician, a sports person, a politician, John McAfee, anyone wants to write their own book. They want to do that uh, for one or two reasons. They, you know, There's ego, there's money, all these things. Most of these people don't want to do it themselves. And they don't want to do it themselves because they can't, they don't want to. They don't have the time. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. So that's where people like me exist. And uh, basically the process is that I sit with these people. Sometimes it's very uh, concentrated. Like I spend like four days consecutive talking to them the whole time. Other times it would be spread over a series of months, something like that, where we talk. And basically I just record these conversations. And then I just build narrative from there. I mean, obviously most people's lives run reasonably chronologically. So you have a, a timeline that you're working to. But what I got better at over time is steering these conversations in a way that they're going to be easy to deal with later. In my first co-writes, I was just all over the map. You know, conversations were going off on tangents and I just wasn't controlled. So what that meant was when I got the tapes, I was having to sort of pick bits out of one tape, go to another tape. And it was just really, really complicated. So I've got better at it. And I just sit people down on a subject and say, we're going to talk about this today and just go through it. Then when it comes to me building text, I can do that from, from one tape rather than going all over the place. So it is a refinement thing. I've had to refine it. I, but but uh, yeah, to answer yeah. your question, and to answer your question about Microsoft Word, yeah, literally. I mean, <laughs> there is nothing harder than opening a blank. This is a new document on Microsoft Word and starting typing. Every book has to do it. And, you know, I hate, I even turn the word count off because I hate seeing that I've written 800 words of an 80,000 word manuscript. I hate that. And I hate seeing that I've written 5,000. So I just turn the, 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 the visual word count off and just do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've written a couple of shorter books. You know, they're more like pamphlets. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I get stuck on is uh, every time I open up that document, I kind of go through my past work and start critiquing it. Is it is that something you do? Or do you just go to the end of the document and start writing? How do you how do you deal with that? I don't I don't I don't. Uh, it, well, that's a good question. The first book I wrote, I, I went back and edited it as I was going. Nowadays, I just write. I just crunch it out. And I know that it's reasonably clean uh, nowadays. That I know it's not going to be a sort of trail of wreckage in my path behind me. It's going to be pretty good. So I don't tend to edit. I just tend to put it all down, take it to the end. I, I normally do two or three sweeps through it uh, during the process. I, what I tend to do, this is sort of just a tip I, I do. I, I send it to my iPhone, uh, the entire document, and I take it up to my bedroom I lie in the bed quite often. My, my wife has become more than aware that this is my thing. I take my phone to my bed, lay on my back, and just go through the whole document, reading it as if I'm a reader. And I take mental notes. I put voice notes on my phone, go to that page, have a look at that, check that. It's just my way of getting some distance between what I'm doing because when I'm, when I'm on the Microsoft page, 
you're you're right in that. You can't get out of it. I need to get out of it. And I do that by sending it to my phone. So I probably do that probably half a dozen times during the whole book and have a look at it as a reader. And that really, really helps. That's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great tip. Yeah. Man, uh, so monetarily, uh, you know, well, first of all, you said, you know, you never thought being a writer was very sexy or very interesting. I've always thought it would be a fascinating career because you're, you're creating something. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's that many things that you can do in life where you're actually building and creating something and then handing it out to the world. Yeah. And you're, you're very, it seems like you're very independent. Um, you know, have you found it to be a more interesting journey at now that you're, you're, you're on this journey for a number of years. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, tell me what that's been like. I was so wrong. I think it's the sexiest job ever. I honestly do. I really do. I mean, you know, I get to work with people that have led interesting lives. I get to go into their world for a year at a time. Then I get to leave and either I leave and we never talk again, which isn't the case. Actually, most of these people end up being my friends and we continue a relationship long beyond the book where we never mention the book again. It's almost like we forgot that we worked together and that we've just become friends. So I can't think of a better job than that because, you know, whatever you're interested in, if it's sport, if it's music, if it's someone like John McAfee, if it's someone else, you get to live their life for them and with them for the duration of the project. And to me, that's fascinating. And I misjudged what could be done when I was 17. I had no idea that a ghostwriter even existed. Uh, but once I started doing it or co-writing, I don't think there's anything better. And you're completely autonomous. I don't have to, I'm not answerable to anybody apart from a deadline with a publisher. And I'm not even very answerable to those anymore because, you know, because sometimes they just go flying by and I mean, people know it's going to get done, but you know, I, I think it's the best job I've, I could have ever found myself in. And, and monetarily speaking, has it uh, been what you expected? probably been a lot more yeah if you find the right projects okay. and i have done i mean i mean I'm, i won't lie i don't sit around waiting for life to happen to me uh in terms of these things i go out and find people and i do that because i want to make shit happen uh excuse the expression you know some things will come to you i mean I will get emails from agents saying you're interested in this or from publishers saying you're interested in being attached to that. They will happen. But the most of the stuff happens with me saying, I want to work with this person. I'm going to find them. And as you know, in this day and age, there is very, there are very few people that you can't find one way or the other. If it's social media or whatever it is, you can find people and you can get their attention. And if you do, that's what I did with John McAfee. Uh, I went and found him and you know, you got to make stuff happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love that philosophy of life of just, you, you just do things, you experiment, you iterate, you find, you find a way. Yeah. You got to hustle. So, I mean, with John McAfee, you instant messaged him on Twitter, I believe. Yeah. That that's right? how it started. We, I followed him. He followed me back surprisingly, but John followed a few people. And I said, Hey, I can't believe you've never written a book. Would you consider doing it? And his first reply was, uh, how much will it cost me? I said, it's not going to cost you anything. Uh, it's going to cost me of anything, but so we get we went into this sort of weird. Uh, we had a bit of a, a standoff to start with. I have to say it was a standoff, whereby he was really suspicious of me. But I don't think it was specifically me. I think he was suspicious of anyone because if any, anyone knows about John, he knows he was that kind of guy. So he he tested me at the beginning and. He asked me to send me some work, to send him some work. And I made a mistake of sending him the wrong thing. I sent him an article that had been written about me in a paper that weekend because I thought it was cool. And I was trying to impress him. And he wasn't impressed. He said, send me stuff. I don't care what anyone thinks of you. I need material you've written. So I sent him a book, PDF. And uh, he came back and said, you're the guy. And he said, I've been approached a thousand times to write a book. People say you've got to do it. I've worked with other people before, but I think you're the person. And that's how it turned out. Wow. I mean, that must have been incredible. Uh, you know, you, you message him on Twitter and then next thing you know, you're, you're starting to work with him. Tell me, you know, you wrote at the beginning of your book uh, that John was like the, uh, I think you described him as like the great white whale. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, I just think, you know, I, I'm into adventure. You know, don't get me wrong. I love all the people I've worked with, sports people. It's great to live these lives vicariously. 
But John had lived the ultimate life as far as I was concerned in terms of adventure. Uh, I should say I don't approve of all of it. I never did. I don't, that's not my place really to approve or disprove. My, my place is to tell the story. But John had lived this huge life. And if you can actually get a guy like this, and also I won't deny uh, the fact that he's got a million followers on Twitter, I had half an eye on what the promotional possibilities would be if we ever got it to market type of thing. I, I, won't, I won't deny that. But yeah, he was the kind of guy you want to go out there after and hope that somehow you can lure them into, not lure, that sounds sort of deceptive, just encourage them to come into your world and accept you as somebody that they could work with. And, 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 and he did that. And it felt like a real uh, achievement that I'd managed to convince him of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John, uh, he's, he's such an interesting character. And he, he's, he's see, he says things that are, you know, that are not socially acceptable to say. Mm. And, uh, and, and so you, I, I wonder, okay, is he telling, is he saying this just to get attention? Is he, is he, is this the kind of guy he really is? You know, it, it's, he's hard to get a read on, but he seems so authentic oftentimes when you hear him talk and, and interviews and things and, and listening to your, uh, and reading your book. Mm. I mean, what, what was your sense of w whether he was telling the truth on a, a lot of the, his stories about his life or exaggerating <laughs> things of that nature? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, John called himself the, the king of misinformation. So. <laughs> you can you can work some stuff out from that but that could have been a kind of reverse bluff from him because he was like that john john loved to play with people what he liked he he was the kind of guy that if he was a kid he'd be the kind of kid that would throw a a, a pebble into a pond and just watch the ripples and he liked doing that all the way through life and if he could do it via his own persona with the media or whatever even better with John. He he loved doing all of that. So what that meant was, and I, I think I wrote this in the intro, I, I had to be on guard to being sort of gaslit by John. I had to be very careful about what I was buying into. But th there is an important sort of element I should, I should mention here is that the book was originally going to be the co-write of me co-writing his autobiography. That would have been okay. But eventually he bailed on the project because of crypto. Funnily enough, he, he couldn't be paid in crypto. And it ended up being me taking the project independently to a publisher. Now, some people would think that that would be lesser. But I've actually come around to the idea that it's actually more. Because left to his own devices, John would have... I mean, I can't imagine what he would have done if it had just been his voice steering the thing. It could have gone anywhere. I think because the style that we ended up on, me at least pushing back on some stuff, at least challenging him, which I did. I challenged him a lot. I think it made for a much more accurate depiction of his personality. And I'm not suggesting that every, everything he said to me was true, but I think we got a, a much truer picture that way than we would have done otherwise. So... <sighs> what was true and what wasn't. I think John was at a time in his life where he wanted to tell the truth. I think 75 years old, he was in prison, didn't know how long life would last at that point, found a guy that he could trust. I think I got more truth out of him than anyone ever has. I would say that. I, I definitely yeah. do believe that. Was yeah. there stuff sprinkled in between that was that was nonsense? Yeah, quite possibly. Yep. But I think at the core of it, there was a lot of truth there. Yeah, you, you mentioned he was in prison towards the end of his life. Did you do any of the interviews from prison? No. Uh, <clears throat> I, I first spoke to John in October of the September of 2019 when he was on the run, in hiding, actually. I didn't at that time know where he was. Uh, as it turns out, he was in a hotel in Spain called the Bitcoin Hotel, it's been called now. But at one point he said to me, you'll, you'll, come, you'll have to come and visit. And I was like, okay. And he said... You will turn up at an airport in Europe. You will have today's newspaper under your left arm. A man will cross the forecourt with a rose held between his teeth. And he will hand you a boarding pass to a, a city which shall remain nameless. And I was just thinking, this is just James Bond. You're, you're, you're putting me into some <laughs> James Bond movie. In the end, it didn't happen. We never did that. But that was what John wanted to be in the midst of a spy thriller. And I think he reveled in that. But at the same time, I do think he was under some duress. I think he was being chased by who, who knows. We tried to get to that. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, he, he enjoyed it, and I think I think he what he think he knew that the net was closing somewhat, whatever that net was, and I think he saw this book as his means of getting his truth out. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I when I think about reading your book and I think about John, I I, I feel like a, a, the overarching theme of his life was he he wanted freedom so much he he wanted to live his own life and it, he, responsibilities be damned he was just going to live the way that he wanted to live. I mean, there were several points in the book where you pushed push back on him, and you said, you know, John, it, I think John was trying to give money to charity to help children, and and you said, John, it doesn't make any sense. You you don't even have any contact with your own children. I mean, yeah. How did that? That's so. It's so hard to reconcile those two things in in my mind. Um, tell me more about his relationship with his kids. Did he, did he stay in touch with any of them? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Bit sensitive because I've, I was in touch with John's daughter, who is mentioned in the book uh, in the beginning section. His only technically biological daughter. Uh, now, John has said publicly that he reckons he had 47 biological children. Uh, I mean, who knows? I don't know about that. And I don't want to speculate on it either, but I do know that I spoke to her. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about it because I don't think we really agree. And I, I, in a way, I understand on understand her position because she was estranged when he died. They, 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 did, they weren't talking. And I think she might have viewed the book as not an emotional win for her in terms of perhaps being as important to John as she maybe hoped she was. I, I'm just speculating. This is just my my uh, idea. And I think she was disappointed and maybe angry. And I think there's part of her that was perhaps channeling that anger onto me because I was the person that wrote the book and who had that relationship with her father. I get it. Uh, I mean, it's not easy to have a father like John McAfee and – you're watching his life play out publicly. It it, it can't have been easy. And I'd have a, a great deal of sympathy for her uh, as to what the sort of machinations of the relationship were. I don't really know. Uh, I think she disapproved of certain aspects of things that he did. And that's understandable. John did some things that weren't disapproval, but that's really all I know. Uh, but it must be an empty position for her. And I, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up getting in, in touch with uh, his kids? If you don't mind me asking, or if you, if you don't want to share, that's fine. No, I mean, just after John died, uh, a lawyer in, in the US contacted me and said, John's daughter would like to talk to you if you could perhaps spare an hour to talk to her about, because I think, I, well, I'd spoken to John a lot more recently than she had. And I think she was just looking for some comfort. And unfortunately, I really couldn't give her as much as I would have liked to have. I'd have loved to have said, John talked about you all the time. He said, you know, it's just the most wonderful relationship, but John didn't do that. And that's not because I don't think John felt that, but that's just not what we talked about any more than we didn't talk about dead man switches. We didn't talk about crypto a lot. There was a lot of things we didn't cover, but one of them wasn't really his daughter. And I think she was left feeling a bit disappointed by that. And there was nothing I could add. I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to say, yeah, John talked about you all the time, but we didn't put it in the book. I just told her, you know, there was a few mentions and that's all. Yeah, yeah. You know, I maybe we talked a bit about John so far, but people who haven't really uh, delved into his life much, can you kind of give us like an overview of uh, what what made you so interested in him and, and and you know kind of a big picture of of his life and I mean he was su just it's he's such a fascinating guy it's hard to know where to start but maybe you'd have a better sense of where to start with people who haven't really delved into the, yeah. his life before. What I found is most people I've spoken to have been drawn to John through the Gringo uh, documentary that went out on I think it was a show it might have been Showtime I can't remember it when it came out a few years ago and it was focused only on what he did in Belize. And now Belize was only the very latter part of John's life, a uh, very dramatic few years. What fascinated me more about John, actually, when I got in touch with him, was the early life. And that was the early life even before McAfee Associates, the company. Uh, and the reason that was so fascinating to me was because this was the dawning of the computer age. This was when there were no programmers other than John McAfee and a few others. These, this, this was when guys were solving problems 
there were entirely new problems uh, on a frontier that is open now, but at that time was was only just beginning. So I was fascinated by how this guy went from being a kind of high school hustler into the chicks, drinking a little bit and, you know, doing sort of menial jobs, selling magazines door to door into becoming essentially the most in-demand programmer on the planet, which he was. By the 70s, John McAfee was like a god. And these guys could command godlike money. So I, I wanted to know all about that. And he, <laughs> he regaled me in some incredible stories about some of the early contracts he did. He basically became a sort of for hire fixer, programmer type guy who would be shipped off to Germany, to Brazil, to places in the US to tackle specific programming uh, issues for companies. One of them was for NASA, which he, he faked his resume to get a job at NASA, ended up programming something called the Tyros weather satellite. Uh, which he told me to great pleasure and tell me is still pumping back data today from the program he wrote in 1977. So he was this guy who could walk into a company and he had so much confidence that he could like slap down a piece of paper on the desk on the first day and say, hi, John McAfee, I've got the solution to your problem and here it is. And by the way, I don't work from the office. I work from home only and I will not change that. And I'll come in once every two weeks if you need me. And other than that, just assume that everything's done. So he did this with a number of companies. And <laughs> it, this just permitted this incredible life that he lived. He just did what the heck he wanted. But people say, you know, he was slacking. He wasn't. The great thing with John was that he could do the work and live that life. And I said to him, "How do, you know, what was the sort of psychology behind it? And he said, I just wanted to live life. All these jobs I was doing where they were paying me $250,000 for six months in Germany or whatever, that money was just to allow me to live life, not the other way around. I never wanted a career, never wanted to be a corporate type. I just wanted to be this guy that funded a lifestyle by doing jobs now and again. And that's a complete reversal from how most people live life. You know, most people want to have a career or whatever. John didn't want a career. He wanted to live. And if he could do a bit of work in between to, to fund it, that's what he did. And that's really what he did his entire life. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned at one point he was, I mean, he was such an incredible thinker or programmer that he could get a year or two years worth of programming done in a few days. And he would write out that yeah. contract for the full two years. Yep. Just yeah, I mean, was, I mean, was that natural talent? I mean, did he? John was a John was a mathematical genius. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, he 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 viewed everything through uh, through the sort of lens of mathematics, including relationships, which he told me once, and I was always a bit puzzled by that because I was like, I'm not really sure how you view your relationships with the opposite sex from a mathematical sense, and I'm not even I'm not sure that these women would be that pleased to 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 know that that's what you did. But he said I applied mathematics to everything. And he said, once you can apply mathematics to something and you know that you can solve mathematical problems, you can solve everything. And I, and I believe that. And this was particularly pertinent to me because I, I cannot solve any mathematical problems. It's just like a closed book to me. But he said, once, once you know how to do it, uh, any problem that is presented to you is solvable. And programming is just mathematics. Certainly in those days, you were talking uh, – just extreme mathematics, and John had it. So he had that innate talent, and he just transferred it onto everything that he did. Uh, when we first started talking, we talked about you know how you had to learn writing through hard work. Do you think that mm. it came easy for John, all this programming and mathematics, and that he never really had to work hard? Or was there ever a time yeah, where he was I, working hard? Uh, well, I think there was a time where he put in the hours, and th that time was when he first started McAfee Association in the 80s, at the very sort of beginning of viruses in general, they, they described this kind of siege mentality they had, whereby viruses were being invented, they were trying to come up with solutions, it was like an arms race, who can, who can fix this first and who can ward off this virus. And it was quite interesting how he described that, because at the same time, he was heavily involved in drugs, particularly stuff like speed and methamphetamine. And I said, how does that go hand in hand? And he said, actually, it's really important. These two things did go hand in hand because quite simply, there, there weren't enough hours in the day. 
back in that at that time. We had so many problems to fix, so much work to do. We had to stay up all night. We had to stay up all of two nights if if need be. So speed became vital to that world to basically keep people awake. So he did all this. And there was a battle that kind of waged for two or three years in the 80s there when the virus guys got their game together. Then McAfee established the antivirus software, which more or less, barring updates, continues to this day. Once that battle was over, and this was an intense battle, John lost interest. And John, I should say, even with his own company, John didn't want to be a corporate guy. John wanted to sort of just do the do the programming and live his life. And what happened was when the battle was won, McAfee Associates came up with antivirus, it started becoming corporate. And what that meant for John was that no longer would he be solving programming problems. He would be in boardrooms, in charity fundraisers, in the kind of situation that John does not like. And at that point, John decided, I'm just not doing this. I'm not living this life. He said, I'm not a Bill Gates. I'm not a Richard Branson who makes a fortune and stays doing what made me the money. I don't want to do that. I want to leave. I want to live. So people say, oh, John sold out McAfee or whatever. He didn't do any of these things. He just walked out. And obviously, he had a share of the company, uh, which he benefited from when the, the company was floated on the stock exchange after he left. He just kept that money and used it to fund his life. But no regrets, no desire to be a corporate suit. He just did that. And then after he left McAfee, uh, obviously with a lot of money, he told me it was $100 million, I think it was more. Uh, that permitted just outlandish spending. And that's what he wanted to do. And I respected that. I mean, I said to him, you know, it's the kind of life everybody wants to live. It, I mean, if I tried to do it, I'd be homeless in 48 hours. You know, but he had the yeah, money that yeah. he could do it. And, you know, fair play. I mean, who's to say that that's not the way you live life? Right, right. Yeah. And he, he was a man with so many interests. I mean, he 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 took up uh, sport flying, which is flying in, in small airplanes. I think he had some crashes and things like that. And then he, he did things like yoga. I think he even yep. wrote some books on yoga and meditation. I mean, it just just fascinating all over the place is was that <laughs> i like how, how, how was that part of the allure yeah of course i mean the yoga thing was quite funny because he created he built he bought this house in colorado middle of nowhere can't remember how many square feet probably twenty thousand square feet and then he started bringing these women there for yoga classes and i said come on he said no i, I generally was a yoga instructor he'd been to nepal and all this stuff and he had but he said, I said, this sounds like you just trying to score chicks. I mean, you can't tell me it's not. And he said, all right, it, it, it was that. It was that because, you know, he did the math. These women are likely to be athletic and, you know, the yoga type, or maybe a little bit hippie. So these women came to his yoga retreats and some of them ended up staying there sort of permanently, like living there. So this was just John's way. And, you know, he said that he wrote, yoga books he did this was in a, one winter he was really bored he said he couldn't he couldn't be bothered to watch movies anymore so he just he decided just to crank out five yoga books like one after the other <laughs> on the dark nights he said he was just he just sat there cranking them and he said they were all absolute garbage and he trashed them publicly afterwards <laughs> when they came out and i said to him wait a minute what if you trash this book that's that's really worrying for me. We're doing this book together. What if you trash this? And he said, no, I won't trash this one. But that was just John. He, he got this sort of thing where he was like, yoga is my thing. Yoga is finished. Now it's sport flying. Sport flying ended because his nephew was killed in a crash. And then it was building houses. He thought, right, I want to build an apartment in Ecuador for $10 million. And I never want to spend a night in it. And then I want to build one in Texas, then build one in New Mexico and all this stuff. He just did what he felt like doing. But again, with money at your back, you can do these things. And, you know, he, I said to him, why build these houses worth so much money that you never live in? He said, just think of it like sculpture. I enjoyed sourcing the materials. I enjoyed getting gateposts from Japan. I enjoyed getting carpets from wherever. But once the house was there, I didn't care, you know. It's just a house. And I mean, you know, great. If you can do it, that's what you do. But that was John. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, I, as I was reading, I was wondering, uh, do you have uh, recordings of these? I mean, it would be so fascinating to hear John in the raw video or audio or whatever you have. Uh, yeah, is that something just, that you archived and plan on ever releasing? Just to, just to give you a bit of background, the, the, the book has been optioned for a movie and a documentary by Amanda Milius, who is John Milius of Apocalypse Now fame's daughter. There was a couple of people chasing me because it became news that I had the audio and not all of the audio went in the book. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of it. And some of the people who were chasing me wanted the audio only. Some of the people wanted both. Some of the people only wanted the, the book. Amanda wanted both. And I really trusted Amanda in terms of her vision for this. So they were included in the option deal. And uh, when she produces her documentary or scripted movie as well, after that, they will be used. So coming down the line will be some raw audio of John. And there is some some pretty moving stuff in there. There was, there was some occasions where John McAfee sat on Skype crying for a minute at a time uh, about various things wow. in his life. And, you know, if you're sitting looking at this guy's face, what you want to do is comfort him or interject or change the mood or something. But I, I didn't. I just let the tape run. And what that gave me was this just incredible sort of gravity of this grown man, this 74-year-old man as he was, just crying uh, on on the recordings. And I thought it I thought it was really moving. And I thought it was exhibited where he was in his headspace that he was willing to do that. This wasn't somebody faking. This wasn't somebody giving me something for show. This was somebody really pouring out some deep emotions. And I really respected him for doing that. So yeah, to answer your question, that stuff's all out there and it will will resurface in some form or another down the line. But it won't be for me. It will be part of the, the dramatic stuff that's coming. Yeah, that's, that's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to watch it. I mean... It, you mentioned he was crying. I'm kind of surprised by that because I kind of envision John as a type of guy who doesn't live with any regrets. He just does what he wants. He's going to live life to the fullest. But it, I mean, was he, was he, if you can share, was he crying because of some regrets of the past or just things that had happened recently? No, this was, I mean, I should say John was a deeply emotional guy. Uh, for all of his bravado, he was also somebody who was very much in touch with his emotions, whether they be anger, you know, he understood the human spirit better than many people I've ever met. In fact, better than anyone I've ever met. You know, the dichotomy of him was something he was more than aware of. You know, he knew he was an angry, jealous, whatever guy. He also, he was very loving and affectionate. And I said to him, you know, which one is you? And he said, both, just like both of that is you as well and everyone else. He just had this really fundamental understanding of human beings. Uh, which you can only have, I think, when you're 75 years old and have lived a life like him. But he didn't cry because, you know, I was talking about his daughter or any of these things, or he didn't even cry when he was talking about his nephew who died in a sport uh, flying accident. This was when he left Belize and he had two girls that lived with him when he was in Belize. And for people that didn't know, John went down there and ended up getting in a whole load of trouble. And all of that's out there. And he was fleeing the country, having been framed for a murder or accused of a murder. And he got to this position where he had a boat that was ready to leave and he could only choose one of these girls and to go with him. And the girl that went with him had, there was an advantage attached to her coming in terms of who one of her relatives was. And he actually loved the other girl. And he said that I just sat there looking at her eyes and her eyes were just saying, you know, why? Why are you leaving me? And he couldn't explain to her. Uh, and I guess for me, I was quite shocked that that was something that made this guy cry. I mean, there were a number of other things in the book that I would have thought would have been more likely to elicit that response from him. But no, th that that's what he cried about because he, he cried about, you know, the, the boat moving away and seeing this girl on the dock uh, that he knew he'd never see again because he could never go back to Belize. She would never be able to leave. Uh, it seemed to really, it, it seemed to really hit him hard. And he had no problem sharing that emotion with me. Hmm. Yeah. He seems like an incredibly 
complex and, and like you said, uh, present emotionally type of guy. But, uh, I mean, as far as complex, for example, he married uh, one of his prostitutes mm-hmm. and she even tried to kill him or poison him, he claims at times. And just that, that dichotomy of marrying someone that was trying to poison you, just it's so it's so fascinating. I mean, yeah, I mean, when John oh, came back to the U- other, yeah, when John came back Go to the ahead. U.S. from Belize, uh, this was 2012. He basically landed in Miami, met his wife Janice, who I know well, and she's a good friend of mine. She was she was a prostitute in Miami and tried to pick him up, and he wasn't interested in sex. He was interested in just somebody to like cuddle. That's what he told me. I just needed somebody to cuddle in a nice bed. And, you know, they were together, together thereafter. They, they, they seemed to find a, a sort of common bond. And the years between when John got back from Belize and when he went on a yacht in 2019 and, and towards the end of his life were really bizarre. I mean, he's in the US being chased around by a combination of Janice's pimp, people from Belize, the Sinaloa cartel, Armenian criminals from the US being fired at from the side of the freeway by snipers. At one point, he described how they had to move house because he had fired so many shotgun shells through the wall at people who were outside that he had to stuff towels in the holes. His house became non-watertight because John McAfee was inside blasting shotgun through through the walls from the inside. Now, w- was anyone actually chasing him? Was there any reason for this? He said to me that he slept every night with one eye open, with a shotgun pointed at the door of his bedroom. He took a, a shotgun into the shower. Was there any need for this? I don't know. And I'll never know. But that's the way he lived for those last few years. And I challenged him. I said, listen, are you just paranoid here? You know, is there anyone chasing you? He said, no, no, you're you're wrong. And gave me instances and connections to Belize and stuff like that. And I'd, I'll never know if it was true or not. But these last few years were in, were extreme in terms of it. And you're right. Janice tried to kill him. And in fact, this is quite a good story. When we were doing interviews for the for the book project. At one point, Janice appeared from sort of behind him with a cup of coffee and put it down on the table. And uh, he was about to take a drink. Then he stopped and said, Janice, do you mind drinking from that first? And I said, what's going on here? <laughs> what's going on here? And he said, oh, Janice has tried to pause me a couple of occasions and therefore I do not trust her. And in fact, I do not trust <laughs> myself. And... Every time she brings me something, I ask her to taste it first. And I was like, I mean, people have said to me, did he do this for show? Maybe. It was great theater. But I think he really did believe it. I I really think he did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So at one point, you're working with John and and, and he says, uh, you know, I can't do this anymore because uh, I need to get paid in crypto. I mean, why was he so insistent on getting paid in crypto? Yeah, this I, I really wish you told me at the beginning because it would have made things a lot easier. But obviously, we got down the line a little bit with the work. He left all the commercial side of it to me in terms of finding a publisher, all that kind of stuff. And that's my world. That's what I do. I knew people that would be interested. And I had a deal, good deal set up with the publisher. And obviously, he needs to sign a contract. And I said to John, uh, so what address are we sending this contract to? And he said, there's no address. There's, n- there's nowhere anything's getting sent. And I was like, okay, that's going to be a problem. That's a red flag. Uh, I said, what about payments? He said, DAI only. And if, you, and if you can't facilitate this, my friend, I'm afraid our relationship is over. And I said, hold on a minute. W- wait, what is DAI? He said, oh, if you, you need to research what DAI is, et cetera. You need, you're just going to find it out. I said, I, I'm telling you, without even asking them, I don't think there's a publisher on the planet that will pay in DAI. I can almost guarantee you that. I'll ask. He said, I'd take Bitcoin if I had to, but I am not contracting in anything other than crypto. So I said, okay, leave this with me. This is a nightmare because I just know publishers aren't going to do it. And sure enough, I went to them and they were like, what? What? What is this? And so I had to go back to John and say, listen, it's not going to work. 
And he said, oh, fuck them. I've dealt with every company under the sun. And if publishers can't deal in crypto, that's their problem. And they're, they're the dinosaurs and all this stuff. And I said, that may be the case, but we've got a deal on the table here that I'm part of. And you telling me that it's going to get cut adrift because we can't get paid in crypto? And he said, yeah. And I said, why can't you take money? He said, I haven't had a bank account for eight years. No bank account. I said, all right. I could get paid... And I, you know, I could get all the money and I could pay you. He said, you may die. You know, the payments would go on. It, just all kinds of reasons why it couldn't happen. So that's why we ended up parting ways. And that's why I ended up going back to the publisher with my own proposal for the book on my own terms. Uh, but obviously I had to get John's clearance for it because I didn't want to just put this book out with our conversations and not have his blessing. So I went to him once I had my own deal and said, you know, through gritted teeth, do you mind if I put this book out? Basically, our conversations as it would have been, except without you. And he said, go for it, do it. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'll promote it when it comes out. So I've got a lot of respect for that because a lot of people would have said, forget it, that's my material, shutting it down. You know, why should you benefit from something that, you know, was a joint venture? And uh, he didn't say that. And that, kind of typified John to me. John was quite selfless like that. For all the accusations that people make about John in terms of pumping and dumping stuff and whatever, John was very generous to me in that respect. And I really owe him a, a lot of gratitude for the way he handled it. He could have made it difficult. He didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have a sense as to whether that, you know, he said he didn't have a bank account for eight years, but he was a multimillionaire. I mean, he must have been getting money from somewhere. Do you think he really just had everything in a crypto wallet on his phone? I don't think he was a multimillionaire. That's that's one of the things oh, okay. I've I've said since. In fact, I was interviewed by a newspaper quite soon after his death, and I went out there and said, I think John was broke. I really do. Hmm. And people say, people say, oh, but he built all these houses and all that stuff. And uh, these houses just, if you sell them and they devalue or whatever, I mean, you soon get through $100 million when you're spending $20 million on houses. I think John was, I mean, I wouldn't say he was broke. Broke, like my broke and his broke are probably two different things. But I think in, in the scheme of things, John had very little money left. I think he was close to the edge. And I think... I, we now know that he was in a Bitcoin mining hotel. I think he was looking upon this Bitcoin mining as being his way out, perhaps. Uh, hopefully find some angle where he could exist on the run with crypto, whatever. Uh, I think that's what he, I think that's what he was hoping for. But I don't think he had a lot of money sitting around. Okay. I think he'd okay. run out of options. I think he'd run out of road in life. Yeah. Yeah, I get that sense too. I guess now that you mention it, yeah. Um, you you decided to put your book on the Bitcoin SV blockchain uh, yeah. and release it as an NFT. Tell me more about that and how that came about. Yeah, uh, actually, on, I'll go on the record and say I wish I'd done it from the beginning uh, with the original book. I got contacted through Amanda Milius, actually, who is doing the movie. I was put in touch with Canonic company and I think they're in Austin. Uh, she said, oh, you should speak to these guys to do some cool NFT stuff. And I have to say that at that point, I wasn't conversant in NFTs. Uh, I'm an older, well, I'm not an old guy. I'm like 50. And I, I sort of viewed NFTs as like GIFs or like JPEG images or stuff. I, I wasn't really clued in as to what, 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 what it all meant. But what I realized speaking to these guys is they were really talking about sort of bleeding edge technology in terms of what could be done in publishing uh, because there are lots of aspects of publishing that are not satisfactory, like six monthly accounting for authors. Then there's another three months where they can hold on to your money, then pay you. Meanwhile, you're 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 getting paid for books that were sold a year and a, a year and a few months ago through account. Uh, I don't see why I should wait for that because when I go into a store with a book and hand it over to the cashier, she doesn't say, or he, you can pay for this in a year. They say just gives your money and canonic we're doing this with this system uh they explain through bsv whereby the thing goes on there people buy it and the money goes straight into your account now yeah that's just one side of it because 
I liked the idea of the NFT and it allowed us to build in a few options in terms of stuff associated with the movie. And this is the pitch part of it because it's still out there. There's a Discord channel, which everyone that buys the NFT will be part of. There are a few extras associated to the making of the documentary, like people's names could be in the credits and stuff. Basically, what we're inviting people into is a McAfee world, right? Which sounds great. And believe me, it is. You'll have me in there who knows John. You'll have Amanda in there who's making a film about him. This will be a secret society of all things McAfee on a Discord channel, right? So that appealed to me that we could offer people that. Uh, But even above and beyond that, the technology of this seemed like I wanted to signal this via this book. You know, we we all love technology. We all want to control it. It makes our lives easier. But at the same time, there's been a few examples in the last couple of years where technology is going to be used against us. I mean, I, I just think of Australia where their government had some app or something that they could check to see if people were still in their homes, you know, if they were quarantining for COVID or such like. Now, that to me was crazy. And that was an example of the simple question, do we want to control technology or do we want to be controlled by it? And I'm in the latter camp, you know, and it seemed to me that to signal that I could publish this NFT book uh, with the extras on Canonic via somebody as clearly symbolic to freedom as John McAfee just seemed like too obvious a thing to do. Yes, of course we want to sell them and there's there's a commercial aspect of it. I'm doing business. That's what I do. But beyond that, it's the signaling that's much more important. Here's John McAfee. This is what John believed in. You can believe in it too. And you either are in or you're out. And that, that was it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And I, I've been I've been looking at the book. I think you get a like a high quality print with a holographic cover. Um, what what else? What, what do you have a copy of it that you could hold up to the camera? I don't have the new one yet. Uh, so basically, what what it will be is limited edition, numbered and signed, collectible, all signed by me. Collectible, new holographic cover. Uh, Obviously, the NFT aspect of it is the digital receipt that's online. That's me being a real boomer and learning that that is what I should say it is. It's a digital receipt forever on the chain. That's great. Uh, and then there's the extras associated with the, with the documentary. This documentary is running in parallel. I think, I believe, and I'm not, I, I don't want to be held to this, but I think they're a month from production. So we're starting to get into the really interesting time with this documentary and, uh, there's going to be some conversations on the Discord that is going to give people some real jumpstart on it. And uh, I will obviously have all that information before anyone else. And Amanda, who's directing, will have it before me. So if you're in that world and you've bought the book and you've got the NFT and you're signaling John and all of that, you're also in this McAfee documentary world. So that is the entire package. And, you know, forever you will have the hardcover with the, with the limited edition cover, which I think is extremely cool. Uh, and it's signed and numbered. And also there's the secondary market aspect of the NFT. You know, you can buy it for what it is, but there's also, you can sell it later. So, you know, who knows what might happen with the McAfee legacy down the line. All of a sudden you might be sitting on something that you paid X for that might be worth Y down the line. So roll all that together. And I think it's a pretty cool package. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a limited edition of only like 250 copies you get, you get a receipt of that 218. Okay, why 218? Apparently 218, and I, I, this is me being ignorant, is apparently a significant number in the programming world. I don't know why. Or 218 or something. There is a significance to it. Uh, we toyed with the idea of doing 75 because that was the age John was when he died, but we went for 218. Uh, so you get the hardcover book with the cover, signed and, signed and numbered, high quality. You get the digital receipt on chain and you get all the bonus material of being involved in the documentary with the possibility of having your names, your name roll on the credits when it goes. So if this thing hits Netflix, which is our plan, you could be sitting there in your house on your sofa and you see your name roll down the credits. I'd be up for that. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and those, uh, if you're holding the NFT in the, in the, uh, people want to buy that and, and the value goes up two or three times, that'd, that'd be something cool as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the 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 whole idea of NFTs in general, I I'm still wrapping my mind around. But I I have bought a book on Canonic. It's called uh, The Inner Game of Startups. This is by Isaac Morehouse, and so you get a receipt for that, and then you send an email to the author eventually when the print comes out, and you get a like a hard you know a hard copy something. Most NFTs don't have a physical item associated with them, so I think that's pretty cool, and it's exciting to see you doing that. I think it's. I think it it bridges the gap of understanding for people uh, because a lot of people are like me. They just think the NFTs are gifts or whatever. And, you know, there's there's nothing tangible to it. But I think Canonic are so great because they're 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 seeing into the future by twenty years. You know, nobody has all the answers in terms of crypto or Bitcoin. And one of the guys that I was talking to gave me this great analogy to think about uh, from a heavy metal perspective. You know, everybody's heard of Metallica. Everybody knows Metallica plays stadiums. But with this kind of technology, we're at the stage when Metallica were playing to nine people in a club in San Francisco in 1982. That's where we're at. We're not at the point where we're playing stadiums with Bitcoin yet. We're trying to get there. We're experimenting. We're testing. This is an experiment. Can we find a publishing model on Canonic with Bitcoin that works? And the answer is yes, it is doable. You've done it. You bought that book. You have a copy there. You have a digital receipt. You're part of the Canonic world. You're signaling that you're willing to be part of it. And that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, what the future holds in terms of the possibilities, who knows? I mean, it might be that not only could we have books it could also be movies who knows if the mcafee movie might end up being the first thing that ever gets put on there as an nft who knows these things all you've got to be is willing to try it and i and i am uh, as a guy who is resistant to technology to a certain degree and i like to sort of hide from it and say well i don't need to know that but actually i do need to know that and i think that applies to everyone you got to be you got to open your eyes to what the possibilities are we can't keep going on Amazon. You know, we go on Amazon because it's so convenient and it's so easy and we can have a book delivered the next day. There are other ways. And I think Canonic is one of them. That's just not me being a salesman. Yeah. I, I believe in them, in what they're doing as much as I, uh, I love the guys there. Yeah. Yeah. What are you working on next? <laughs> uh, I'm doing a book. Steve Bannon, who is someone I admire a lot. I admire Steve. Don't agree with everything he does. Agree with most things. And I kind of hunted Steve down. Said, I want to write a book about you. And I want to know the early Bannon. Now, for people who don't know, I mean, I would say 80% of people who've heard of Steve Bannon have heard of Steve in the capacity as Trump's White House. That, however long it was, that he was Trump's campaign manager. And Steve got a pretty rough rub about all of that. People took a pot shot at how he looked, how he dressed, all that stuff. Behind all that is a genius political mind, absolute genius political mind. But these things don't happen overnight. And as much as I was fascinated by early McAfee, I'm even more fascinated by early Bannon. Early Bannon, Goldman Sachs, the Navy, Hollywood, China. There's so much that Steve did before even even came anywhere near Trump's White House. And there's a mindset that Steve has in terms of his vision for, you know, whether you agree about a nationalist populist agenda or not, there's a scientific political mind that just sat, that, that really fascinates me. So I, I basically hunted Steve down and said, I want to do something with you. He was reluctant at the beginning, eventually agreed. So I'm doing a biography of Steve Bannon which will have inside baseball from him. It will have inside baseball from all kinds of people who've been around Steve. He knows it can't be sycophantic. It has to be a balanced look. So I'm going to speak to people that don't like Steve, and there's plenty of them, uh, plenty of people who disagree with the whole Bannon world. And that's fine, because what I learned from John McAfee is that we're not all good. We're not all bad. We've all got this dichotomy of, of being. And I'm really excited to get into it, and uh, this is something that I've been doing for the last few months. And I hope that it will appear this year. If not, it will be early next. But that's that's the world I'm in at the moment. Fantastic. That sounds interesting. I'll, I'll be sure to pick that up when it comes out. 
uh, and maybe have you back to talk about that book as well. Um, I'd love to. Where should people follow you? Yeah, I mean, Twitter. Twitter is my thing. Uh, just my name at Mark Eglinton. I'm also on the the other platform called Getter. Same handle there. I do Twitch. Uh, <laughs> I, I like Twitch. I just can't really figure it out. And I feel like I'm by far the oldest guy on there by like 20 years. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. Don't know. But anyone that's watching this that's on Twitch that sees me on there, just cut me a break. All right. I'm finding my way. <laughs> it's not just all boomer stuff. You know, I'll, I'll find the lingo. I'll learn how to vibe with you guys. But I get that it's part of this world, the BSV world and canonic world. I get it. So I will figure it out and, you know, I'll put some stuff on there that will make you go, wow, all right, this guy's getting it finally. So I'm on there. Don't know what my handle is. Just look up my name. I'll, you, you'll find me there. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be sure to tag you in some twitches uh, going forward yeah. after this interview. Earn some money too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not on Twitch and you're listening to this interview, uh, go to twitch.com and sign up. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of interesting people in there. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And you can, you can also earn money by being on social media. Well, Mark, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on this call with me and talk with me uh, about John McAfee. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.